0: It's the 4th of February, 2022. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This week, a little more exercise might save your life. Maybe a new diet, one of four diets, could actually lower your risk of developing gout. And could you lower your risk of Parkinson's disease by taking a DMART? Yeah, that and more. Let's begin with what I think is one of our worst diseases to take care of. Think about the worst diseases. What do you not want to see show up in your clinic? There's a lot of things you don't want to see from me. It's hand erosive osteoarthritis or erosive hand OA, EHOA. It is frustrating, it's tough, it's painful, and I don't have anything for it. So, this particular study of almost a hundred patients looked at those patients and showed 89% were women, that, um, you know, DIPs and PIPs were involved. But when you came right down to it, there was more erosive disease in the DIPs than in the PIPs. Uh, It likes DIP2 maybe as the most common joint of all. Uh, And interestingly, the comorbidity with other forms of arthritis sometimes coexists here. So crystal arthritis in 8% of patients with EHOA, RA and 5% and PSA, psoriatic arthritis and 1%, are those really coexisting? Are those misdiagnoses? You know, some people, it can be a little difficult to tell whether this is hand away with erosive disease or one of those others I just mentioned that can cause erosive disease, especially when there isn't squishy synovitis. You know, when I was a fellow, Dr. Chester Fink used to talk to me about uh, the exam of uh, kids with arthritis, and he thought that there were some kids, like adults, who he called having dry synovitis, meaning there wasn't a whole lot of squishiness there, but there was a fullness, and they had erosions, and, and he thought that was sometimes seen in JIA. I think I've seen those patients with RA and PSA. Could they really be hand OA? You know, the numbers on hand OA range from, you know, High as 10% uh, in some series um, of OA patients. Um, the problem is, in this particular retrospective study, the only thing that gave any relief of pain were NSAIDs in only one-third of patients. You know, there are plenty of trials that have shown all your, bi- all your biologics, TNF inhibitors and, and methotrexate, DMARDs, and hydroxychloroquines don't work in hand-OA. And the numbers of people out there that are not being well-treated is astronomical. This is a large unmet need. Please do trials. Please do research in this area. Talking about frustration, another tough one, RSD or sudex atrophy, now better termed CRPS, uh, complex regional pain syndrome. Uh, These patients are kind of hard to diagnose, kind of really hard to treat. Seems like nothing seems to work. A particular uh, systematic review of the literature on treatment, really looking at steroids and DMARDs and you know pain meds and a whole bunch of things, showed maybe the best evidence in favor of parenteral, bisph- bif- parenteral bisphosphonate therapy. It did show one study that had ketamine looking good compared to placebo. Uh, again, the primary outcomes in these trials were relief of pain, uh, not necessarily going after swelling and other uh, indices of activity here, but as far as relief of pain, maybe we should be using more parenteral bisphosphonates. All right, I'm pimping you. It's quiz time. What is Ponset's disease? You know, it's a great question that always shows up when we're taking board exams or when we're being uh, pimped. Ponset's disease is reactive arthritis due to tuberculosis. Now, it's usually MTB, but you can actually have Ponset's reactive arthritis, looks just like reactive arthritis, a few joints, asymmetric, comes up after you can diagnose the inciting infection, which in this case would be largely pulmonary TB, but it can come up in some of the other um, non-tuberculous forms, and even MAI has been associated with Ponset's disease. Uh, Remember that when you're being quizzed. So, When we were getting into the treatment of uh, COVID and how our patients were going to do and would they respond well to the vaccine, you know, our patients were excluded from those vaccine studies, Um, but there were cohorts of HIV patients who took the vaccine. Um, I still don't know that data. I've still been looking for that data, but I did this week come across an MMWR report that talked about uh, HIV patients or persons living with HIV. Uh, HIV. And it turns out that HIV patients do have more COVID-related hospitalizations and do have more COVID-related deaths. Hence, their treatment and prevention is vitally important. And in this particular study, they looked at the number of patients who were vaccinated. So they looked at a large cohort of patients from New York. They showed that 63% were fully vaccinated, one Janssen or two of the mRNA vaccines. Uh, 4% were partially vaccinated and 32% were not vaccinated. Now, the problem here is we don't have the results of what happens when they took the vaccine. I'm looking for that. I'll find that in the weeks to come. But they did show that overall, persons who are living with HIV disease were less likely to get vaccinated than the general population. Again, that fear factor is a big problem. The general population, about 75% in New York, whereas the HIV population was 63%. So this is another another unmet need when it comes to vaccination and COVID. Uh, a review of another autoimmune disease that we sometimes see in association with are many diseases we take care of, and that is vitiligo. And uh, the prevalence of vitiligo is about uh, 1.9 million cases in the United States in 2020. Um, and there are actually two different estimates. One says, um, it's between 0.76 and 1.11% or 1.9 to 2.8 million cases. They go on to say that 40% of adult vitiligo in the, United, in the United States is undiagnosed. Boy, how's that happening? Cause I can see these people from like across the airport. Um, and you know, it's easy to spot. How could you not know where all that pigment has gone? Nonetheless, 40%. We do see vitiligo often in association our diseases. I don't think that anything we do um, changes the outcome. To me, it's a little bit like Sjogren's syndrome, another autoimmune disease where once the damage is done, you're left with the damage. It's like thyroid disease, often autoimmune. Once the damage is done, you're hypothyroid. Sjogren's, once the damage is done, dry eyes, dry mouth, nothing's going to change that other than spitting tears that you put back in. And now vitiligo, burn out those melanocytes, the damage is done, no more pigment there. That can be the consequence of chronic inflammation, um, autoimmune-mediated inflammation. So what about x-ray progression? And can you tell that in ankylosing spondylitis or spondyloarthritis? This particular uh, radiographic study um, done in a um, Spanish Biologics treated registry of spondoarthritis patients um, looked at 101 patients and tried to correlate whether you were on chronic TNF inhibition, TNF inhibitors, or um, what was the role of activity in progression versus non-progression, and that was measured by standardized measures of X-ray scoring in spondilarthritis, the SAS scoring method. In their study, they showed that that it was only the patients who had sustained low ASDAS scores, meaning inactivity that had less progression, and that the progressors were the ones who had more disease activity. So uh, again, progression was only 1.76 if you were sustained low disease activity, and it was 2.33. It turns out that over two is a significant number in SAS progression, and that was significant. They also showed that it was chronic TNF inhibitor use. They did not show a difference in progression, non-progression with TNF inhibitor use until you were on a TNF inhibitor for at least three years. goes along what we know. It's hard to prove x-ray benefit in uh, ankylosing spondylitis, spondyloarthritis, because x-ray changes are slow. And because you would need to be on a TNF inhibitor for three or more years, we don't usually have clinical trials that look that far out. You know, six months 24 weeks, 16 weeks, and then if you're lucky, a one-year extension. The FDA has come up with a new use for remdesivir. Its trade name is uh, Vecluri. Um, As you know, previously remdesivir, which I thought only gave a little bit of benefit to sick hospitalized patients and that it really got good when they were using remdesivir with baricitinib. Baricitinib was doing all the heavy lifting, if you ask me. But nonetheless, remdesivir was approved for use in hospitalized patients with pneumonia and COVID. Now FDA has expanded its approval for remdesivir in non-hospitalized adults and even kids who have mild to moderate COVID-19 disease prior to hospitalization. So that is an approval that's out there that you could use if you were treating COVID patients. So I'm teased at the top of of this report about Parkinson's disease and that maybe you could prevent it. The story about that is that some chronic inflammatory diseases and some arthritis are often associated with a higher risk of Parkinson's or vice versa. If you look at Parkinson's populations, there's more OA patients, there's more gout patients, there's more Crohn's disease patients. Is there more RA or is RA associated with more Parkinson's? Kind of a mixed bag. And some people feel that these mixed results are the result of different therapies that we use. So in this particular large Finnish cohort of uh, Parkinson's patients, 22,000, it's called FinPark is the registry, they looked at the association with rheumatoid arthritis and especially those that were treated with DMARDS. It turns out that overall DMARDS did not lower nor increase the risk of Parkinson's, but that being on an antimalarial either chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine significantly lowered the risk of Parkinson's by 26%, an odds ratio of 0.74, and that was a significant number. So yet another, you know, whiz-bang spin-off benefit to that great drug, hydroxychloroquine. A safety review came out this past week about IL-17 inhibitors, Um, It was a meta-analysis, looked at 106 clinical trials and over 40,000 patients exposed to IL-17 inhibitors. And of course, the big question on everyone's mind is, how often will you see inflammatory bowel disease as a consequence of IL-17 inhibition? You know, the numbers in the clinical trials was about one case per 1,000 patient years one case per 1,000 patient years, it went up, you know, four to sevenfold if you're looking at its use in ankylosing spondylitis. And that makes sense because if you're looking at patients with psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, there's no, there is an association, weak association with colitis. But we do know historically that patients with ankylosing spondylitis, remember back in the 80s when we were using sulfasalazine and there was all that concern about the treatment of terminal ileitis? Maybe that there was a, a, it was a forerunner to either Crohn's or to ankylosing spondylitis. To me, it's not surprising that you would see a higher rate of, um, of colitis in spondylitis patients. And, you know, the IL-17 inhibitors are not useful at all in treating colitis. In fact, they may worsen it, may cause it. The risk in this particular meta-analysis of many studies was 0.4%. That's 4 per 1,000. It's kind of what I just said as far as what they discovered in the development clinical trials for both Ixakizumab and secukinumab. Other GI symptoms that were noted, diarrhea, 2.5%, nausea, 0.7%, and gastroenteritis. Hadn- haven't seen it, but that's because it's 2 in a 1,000 or 0.2%. I think these jive with what I've seen in using IL-17 tri- inhibitors to treat both spondylitis or psoriatic disease. If you've ever had to justify your salary, you know, what do you what's your argument? You know, rheumatologists are not great at generating a lot of money in the practice to pay for the salaries and and to, you know, to get what you're worth in this marketplace it can be kind of difficult. There was a nice study in Arthritis uh, Care and Research, the uh, ACR publication that looked at the ability of uh, an academic rheumatologist to generate money outside of enm coding. So in their particular study, they showed for every one dollar generated for an office visit by enm codes, these academic rheumatologists each generated twelve dollars of downstream revenue and most of that was from influ- from infusions. What am I talking about here? Well, these same doctors, basically on average, would generate about 174,000 in E&M code um, patient care. That other um, gener- funds generated for the division was up to 600,000, and that downstream, that room, those rheumatologists generated 2.1 million, with about 1.3 million of that being from infusions. So, there's a lot of evidence that hiring a rheumatologist generates a lot of income for the division, for the department. The JAMA this past week published on the benefits of exercise, and uh, this is in accordance with some very mild guidelines for adults age 40 to 85 that say if you increase your um, amount of moderate to vigorous physical activity by as little as 10 minutes per day, what are the benefits? In this study, it resulted in 110,000 less deaths per year in the United States. So very little commitment to moderate to vigorous exercise. That would include walking and stationary bicycle and, um, I don't know, using the stairs when you go to lunch and come back from lunch. Not a bad idea. We did mention during the year-end review that there were new drugs approved, and one of them was for something you should treat, and that would be myasthenia gravis. You know, not all the neurologists are going to take care of those patients or diagnose them. Uh, very few available treatments for this, and there's a new drug called Vivagart or Fgartigamod. Can we say that together? Let's go, people. Efgartigamod. 2021, it's a drug that actually binds to neonatal FC receptors and, and stops recirculation of, of IgG, and that's supposed to help um, um, in lowering the uh, antibodies to the uh, choline receptor. turns out the patients who have uh, those that are receptor antibody positive are the ones who respond best to this particular therapy, 68% versus 30%. Common side effects of this new medicine are pretty mild. Uh, UTI, URI, headaches, uh, much less common are eyelid swelling, rash, and shortness of breath, F-Gardigamod, or VivaGart for myasthenia gravis. You know, there I was surprised by the coincidence that there were two reports this past week about the pediatric rheumatology um, shortfall in workforce. The ACR has its publication, as did um, the Canadian Rheumatologist's This is part of the overall rheumatology workforce study in 2015. They reported the results of what was seen in the pediatric um, rheumatology world, where they identified a total of 300 pediatric rheumatologists filling 287 FTE, full-time employment positions, meaning that some of these patients were working part-time. The problem is that that was a shortfall of about 33%. That they needed another another 95 to meet population needs, and the problem is that if you even take the same rate of number of people going into pediatric rheumatology and uh, and, the, and and not having excessive loss, that by 30 2030, uh, that within the next um, eight years, we're going to be down 100 percent, not 33 percent. So we're only going to be able to cover half the population needs for pediatric rheumatology. It's kind of the same in Canada where they identified 80 clinical FTEs to do their nationwide pediatric rheumatology care. That's a big shortfall if you're wanting one pediatric room per 75,000, but about expected for one in 300,000. That's a hard work pediatric rheumatologist in Canada. They say they make up the rest of their needs with allied health professionals. I assume that means nurse practitioners and and physicians where they have a number of them being hired. Bottom line is we need a strategy both in Canada and the United States as to how we're going to meet the need going forward. Uh, The women's health study was in the news this week talking about healthy diets preventing gout in women. So they studied four particular diets that are deemed to be healthy. The DASH diet, that's um, the the Approaches to Stop Hypertension diet. The the Alternate Mediterranean Diet Score, the Alternative Healthy Eating Index, A-H-E-I. The Prudent Diet plus a Western Diet as the Unhealthy Control. Uh, Turns out if you used any one of these four diets that were deemed healthy in the women's nurse study and they were adherent to that, There was a 12 to 32 percent reduction in the incidence of gout, new gout cases. Moreover, if that was coupled with um, uh, normal weight and avoiding diuretics, that rate uh, of reduction for incident gout went down by 65 to 68 percent. So, again, another strong uh, bit of evidence about you can prevent gout by just using a good diet. I think the three big reports in this past week was ANR, I'm sorry, the ACR and ULAR publishing the classification criteria for the diagnosis or classification of granulomatosis with polyangiitis, um, eosinophilic granulomatosis with polyangiitis, or EGPA, the old Turg-Strauss, and then microscopic polyangiitis. These are all um, a back-to-back publication midweek. I think it was Wednesday. Um, and And basically, what they did was they um, took a large international cohort. they looked at ninety one variables they recruited patients half for the development of criteria um, data set, and then once they developed criteria, they tested that on a validation data set. So all these criteria have been developed and then validated on fairly large numbers in the GPA group, I think it was like five hundred patients. Um, plus like 500 controls, and then test it again, I guess, against a really large group again. And it, to make a diagnosis of GPA according to these new classification criteria, what do they have? You have to exclude other vasculitis mimics. You have to have small or medium-sized vasculitis, and you have to have a score of plus five or more. If you have that, you have a sensitivity of 93%, specificity of 94%. How do you get five points or more? Let's go into it. Bloody nasal discharge crusting or sinonasal congestion, plus three. Cartilaginous involvement, plus two. Hearing loss, plus one. C-ANCA or PR3 uh, antibody positivity, plus five. Heck, if you've excluded those things and you have the antibodies, you've got the diagnosis according to these, these criteria. A pulmonary nodule mass or cavitation, plus two. Granuloma or giant cells on biopsy, plus two. Inflammation or consolidation of the nasal-paranasal sinuses on imaging, plus 1. Posse-immune glomerulonephritis, plus 1. You lose points for atypical things or things not usually seen, like eosinophilia, minus 4, or P-ANCA, or MPO positivity, minus 1. Same sort of construct was applied to microscopic microscopic polyangiitis and eGPA, should you need those. What else do you need? You need good education, virtual or on-site you know, Room Now Live 2022, be there March 19th and 20th, a half day on the 20th, a full day on, on, the, on the 19th. Um, it's going to be a great meeting. we got a lot of people coming. Uh, clearly, we're designing this to be highly interactive. We need you to show up, invigorate, instigate, and debate our great faculty. Look at our faculty list. I think it's a great list. I think our topics are great. You can go to roomnow.live and register. We're going to end with a case from Canada, Dr. Jan Granieri. Uh, Jan sends me a case uh, in Ask Kush Anything. It's a 40-year-old HLA-B27AS patient, former Marine, multiple tours in Iraq, had an MRI showing SI joint um, uh, erosions. Uh, treated and did well with adalimumab for two years, did did really well. But then November 21, got sick with COVID, resolved, no residual symptoms, but then did have sort of progressive onset, uh, and he's still getting adalimumab, of shortness of breath. X-ray, chest X-ray showed ILD. Chest CT um, was read to be consistent with sarcoidosis. What? uh, Bronchoscopy and pathology showed non-necrotizing granulomas. So the question is, is this a case of paradoxical reaction of TNF inhibitors? That's where you take the TNF inhibitor. Instead of getting the disease getting better, the TNF inhibitor induces disease for which it's indicated for use. So the best example is developing psoriasis on a TNF inhibitor a 1 in 1,000 risk. There are other examples, including TNF inhibitor-induced sarcoidosis, number of cases out there. So she stops the map. The patient's doing well, not taking anything currently, but she's concerned about his disease and what can you do? She wonders, can I get the same problem with an IL-17 inhibitor because that may do the same thing. Right now, she's waiting. No take, no, no steroids, no Uh and the question is, what are you going to do? here's my take on this. I think that this is either a paradoxical reaction with resultant sarcoidosis as proven by the non-necrotizing granulomas. Lung biopsy, right? But you know what else gives you non-necrotizing granulomas? Infections, right? Occult Crohn's disease. Now, if you'd like to see non necrotizing granulose in the GI tract, then this could all be due to Crohn's disease. And, you know, are there cases of paradoxical reactions with TNF inhibitors causing Crohn's disease? Yep, that exists too. So clearly, I don't think you can go back to the Crohn's disease, I mean, to the um, TNF inhibitor. I think that um, it's probably not worth it at this point. The other examples, especially psoriasis, as well researched. If you get psoriasis, um, re-challenging them with a TNF inhibitor usually leads to more disease. I think your treatment options are things that don't work, nonsteroidals and DMARDs, sulfazalzine, methotrexate, I wouldn't do that. IL-17 inhibitors or JAK inhibitors. As you know, tofacitinib. the JAK inhibitor was approved for use in Crohn's disease. Um, um, I'm sorry, was approved for use in ankylosing spondylitis. And JAK inhibitors are approved for use in ulcerative colitis, not for Crohn's. IL-17, the problem here is that if you take an IL-17 inhibitor, you have, as we talked earlier in this report, a 4 in 1,000, a 1 in 1,000 chance of developing colitis. If the patient has ankylosing spondylitis, it's 4 to 7 per 1,000. Again, you probably shouldn't give IL-17 inhibitors to patients who have known active Crohn's disease. But if this guy has no Crohn's disease, then you could use an IL-17 inhibitor or you could use a JAK inhibitor. And, I w- and I, by that, I mean tofacitinib here because uh, that's the one that's approved. The other JAK inhibitors are showing clinical trial results where they do work right, in, in spondylitis, but they're not yet approved. So me, I'd use the JAK inhibitor or the IL-17, but I think either is a good choice. It's a good choice to tune in next week. And listen to more great news and journal reports from Room Now. Take care of yourselves. Be safe.